This is Untimely Reflections, a series of conversations with some of my friends, streamed here through the Nietzsche podcast. So I'm here with Devin Gore. Devin is known as Left Nietzschean on Twitter. Uh, Devin, welcome to the podcast. Uh, how are you doing? Thanks. Thanks for having me on. Uh, doing great. Uh, excited to talk about uh, talk a little bit about Nietzsche and politics and uh, what kind of what kind of resources you might have to offer for left political thought. Yeah, I guess what I'd like to start with, maybe I'd like to ask you about your background, um, kind of your path through academia and why Nietzsche became a focus for you or what you found fascinating about Nietzsche. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's it's interesting because despite, um, you know, this Twitter alias uh, that I've adopted uh, that does kind of focus on uh, the question of Nietzsche's political implications, um, my overall project um, is a little less a little less focused on that and um, a little closer to uh, certain questions of mental health, madness, neurodiver neurodiversity uh, in the context of Nietzsche's philosophy. Um, and that sort of uh, maps onto my trajectory uh, throughout academia uh, during the time that I was there um, and afterwards. Um, you know, I uh, did my undergraduate at Oberlin College and started out really uh, convinced I wanted to study philosophy um, and was already, you know, steeped in Nietzsche's thought and oftentimes in some of the really naive ways that you get when you read Nietzsche in high school. Um, but Nietzsche was an important part of what what led me to want to study philosophy. Um, and some of my, you know, dissatisfaction with some of the features of, of you know, analytic philosophy um, and a lot of U.S. philosophy departments ended up uh, leading me to political theory. Um, and when I, I ended up uh, getting my PhD in political theory uh, from Yale, um, where I was working on a dissertation uh, that really went away from Nietzsche um, and focused on some questions, not unrelated, but uh, more about kind of moral foundations and the normative foundations of critical theory, particularly in the Frankfurt School tradition. Um, what are the principles we can appeal to in order to conduct a social or political critique um, are they based in reason? Are they universalistic? Or are they based on something more affective, uh, embodied forms of knowledge? Are they more particular, or contextual? Um, trying to work on some questions that I think, you know, really do, do relate to the heart of Nietzsche's philosophy, but through kind of a different tradition. Um, and what kind of eventually led me to go in a different direction was uh, more life experiences. Um, about midway through grad school, um, I had uh, the first of uh, what have been a couple different uh, psychotic episodes uh, and was diagnosed with bipolar disorder uh, at the time I was hospitalized um, and had to go through an entire kind of period where I couldn't work on my dissertation. I couldn't work on political philosophy really in general. Um, took me really about a year to feel even, even a bit like myself after the, the first time this happened. Um, and this was really the start of a kind of mental health journey that led me away from academia simply because um, I ultimately kind of found I wasn't psychologically well-suited for academic research and the environment there. But at the same time, it led me back to Nietzsche um, because, you know, not only is Nietzsche known oftentimes as the mad philosopher and famous because of his breakdown in 1889, um, and, and incarceration in asylums uh, after that, um, later spent the rest of his life in the care of his sister and, and mother. Um, he also offers a tradition of a, a pattern of thinking, a trajectory of thinking that I think from the beginning is marked by a concern with the relation between reason and madness. 
uh, in the way that certain kind of ecstatic experiences in the form of the Dionysian are an integral element of human existence and also importantly related to our forms of reason and uh, our knowledge of the world, uh, particularly in this, this sense that there's something tragic about our knowledge of the world um, that might undermine our ability to act or find ourselves intelligible um, as uh, selves, as subjects, as uh, agents, mm. and so forth. Um, and so my current project is really focused on, on a kind of systematic study of Nietzsche's philosophy from the standpoint of the experience of madness, both his biographically uh, and also first personal perspectives of people with a variety um, of conditions that might be thought of as mad or neurodivergent or um, whatever term you prefer to adopt. Um, so I think Nietzsche offers really powerful resources for thinking about this problem that I don't think are, are at all unrelated to the question of a left Nietzscheanism, um, particularly to the extent that there's a growing body of literature on uh, neurodivergent politics uh, as a critique of capitalism, as a critique of the way in which uh, relations of capitalist domination and alienation make us sicker mentally, physically, um, in ways that are disempowering, um, and the way that it uh, does so in part by prioritizing certain normalized forms of subjectivity um, that are damaging to what ought to be seen as a more uh, a broader array or spectrum of human cognitive capabilities and, and affective and physical capabilities. So, yeah. Sorry, just to interrupt briefly, do you draw on Foucault at all in this um, this project? Yeah. Foucault, I think, is, is um, Foucault's foundational for me um, in this, uh, the way I, I'm trying to frame uh, both, both my approach to reading Nietzsche in the sense of how does one... Uh, allow for a kind of discourse of madness, given uh, this abyss that we seem to be separated from madness by by modern reason from um, it, how does one allow it to mm. without already repressing it through a language of reason, uh, but also because I think Foucault foregrounds uh, modern reason and a certain dialectical notion of history as uh, a kind of foreclosure of the tragic, uh, a foreclosure of a certain tragic experience of the universe of the cosmos that was often expressed in religious symbols, in eschatology, um, and expressed in forms of madness uh, that gives a very different narrative of human history, right, than the kind of progressive teleological uh, idea of modern progress. Um, so both of these, are, I think, are, in, are important framing aspects for me in, in how I think about Nietzsche. Yeah, I, I remember, what is it? It's that in many cultures, people who we would call insane or mad might just have a uh, be more open to a connection with the gods or something of that nature? I, I tend to try to think about this historically um, to a certain extent, and, and I guess genealogically in, in a Nietzschean sense, you know, rather than taking a kind of strong stance on what is the epistemically correct way to think about mad experiences from the standpoint of like, are delusions real? Do they correspond to something? Are they rather errors or falsehoods? Um, sort of bracketing that question, I think, it's um, in, in almost like a Nietzschean sense, it's sort of looking at how uh, modern reason produces certain forms of subjectivity that eclipse an earlier kind of subject, religious subject position that might have been available for articulating mad experiences. And that had its had its serious downsides, right, as well as uh, certain richer possibilities in terms of how we might link this to spiritual traditions, right, rather than maybe a, a purely medical interpretation. But I think in each case, it's right. kind of looking at how a historical period produces a form of subjectivity and how that arranges power relationships in in, in different ways. Um, yeah. 
That's uh, that sounds fascinating. Um, before we go further, though, I I, I want to ask. Um, I guess hmm, as as a left Nietzschean, the first thing that comes to my mind uh, before we get into these more complex topics, I guess, would be to ask you exactly what that means to you. And I, I you probably get asked more about the Nietzschean side on some of the podcasts, at least I've seen you on. Uh, but I think for our purposes, and maybe this is a bit of an obvious question, but I, you know, philosophy oftentimes involves an examination of things that the average person might think is obvious. Mm-hmm. But what is leftism? Is there a way to define leftism maybe more broadly? Because at least to my mind, the directional designations that date from the French Revolution don't easily correspond to like the political spectrum in our current situation. So like, how would you define the kind of leftism that you're talking about? Yeah, it's a, I mean, it's a, it's a great and, and basic question. And you'd be surprised how uh, infrequently I'm, I'm asked uh, about this aspect of this rather than, you know, people jumping kind of to the Nietzsche commentary. Um, so I, I like to say that I don't think that the term Nietzschean or Nietzscheanism is appropriate uh, really in any context, because I think that Nietzsche is somebody who has a pattern of philosophical thinking and a mode of philosophical thinking that um, while I don't think necessarily militates against systematicity in a way that I think some commentators would argue, does uh, militate against subscribing to a definite political ideology in many cases. Um, and, and I don't think that you have to go all the way to a kind of hyper-individualistic reading of Nietzsche to say that he's deeply he would be deeply suspicious of any kind of political ideology based on his philosophy. You, one, one thinks of Zarathustra's, uh, Zarathustra's advice to go away from him and only after, you know, only after rejecting Zarathustra can his disciples then finally come back to him. Uh, this idea that Nietzsche kind of expects you to reject him in certain important ways is built into both his the the content of his philosophy and the the way it's presented stylistically rhetorically um so in that respect i think nietzsche presents at best a certain as i said mode or pattern of thinking and particularly moral moral evaluation and judgment um and i think nietzsche has his own evaluate particular evaluations of of socialism of democracy of modern social justice movements of various sorts. I think that we need to listen to what he has to say in that regard and understand how he sees those movements as rooted in certain sort of psychological types or dispositions. But I think we also want to try to understand how these patterns of judging and these patterns of evaluating, uh, which oftentimes we think of as, as master and slave morality in the genealogy or or in Deleuze's terms, as you covered in the in your previous episode, is active and reactive, that these are sort of uh, expressive of, a, of patterns of evaluating that might be applied to a different set of political institutions, political issues in different particular cases. And I think it's also essential to Nietzsche that we're not going to find any kind of moral law or universal uh, moral principle that is going to be appropriate for every instance or every person. Um, so with all of those caveats uh, in place, uh, it, it's just important to note that I think it's, it, there's often this impression that there's a, a left Nietzscheanism uh, and that by sort mm-hmm. of suggested, I like to think of it more as a political style or a political sensibility, or a, as William Connolly once put it, put it an ethical sensibility um, in the context of a, a paper on Foucault that was all, that's also very influenced by Nietzsche. Um, when I think of left, politically left, uh, broadly, I think of a couple primary things. First, in this, in the most directly contradictory to Nietzsche, would be a, a basic 
ethical commitment to ethical and political commitment to equality, um, not just in uh, legal forms under the context of liberal rights, but also more deeply in social and economic forms. Um, so I think you, in this respect, I would still think of Marxism as the predominant tradition on the left um, that, you know, I take myself to be, if I were to take something as emblematic of the left, it's what I would still position myself uh, relative to. It's not to say that aren't, there aren't other traditions like anarchism, for example, but what Marxism gets at is a basic question of economic injustice, economic inequality, and an analysis of capitalism that gets at the heart of forms of alienation and modernity. And I think having some analysis of capitalism in that regard is also an essential feature um, of being on the left um, in our, at least in our, in our current period. Um, and we can yeah. talk about kind of how to situate Nietzsche relative to those kind of materialist commitments in Marxism. Um, so, you know, th those are things that I do take to be left-wing commitments that I, as, you know, I think many people would see as, as obviously, very obviously in, in tension with many of Nietzsche's ideas. Uh, and I like to imagine this, uh, imagine it more as embracing that tension in kind of Nietzschean agonistic spirit and seeing this as a productive tension. Um, one that challenges certain forms of defending left-wing commitments to equality or justice that might ultimately lead us astray or lead us into traps rather than towards a kind of emancipatory or revolutionary future. Um, and it's not to say- I like that, that. you've got- Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was just gonna cut in to say yeah. like, you've got like, uh, you, you can have like Marx and Nietzsche as, uh, you know, um, dare I say the devil and angel on your shoulder um, <laughs> that can, but you know, that the dialogue between two figures I think is really useful. Um, and I often find myself doing that as well, you know, where uh, for me, oftentimes it's sort of maybe Plato and Nietzsche <laughs> of like the essentializing uh, idealistic philosopher versus the brutal realist. Um, but it's useful to have those kind of like antipodal, um, incarnations of thought to argue in your own head sometimes right. so what would they think of this and then what would their antipode think right the anti the antipodes comment that Nietzsche makes about how exalted it is or what have you to have one's antipodes the I mean that that entire um that entire concept is it's not just I think a distinction between Nietzsche and Marcus the angel and devil although I think that's a or, or devil and angel rather <laughs> um although I think that's people like bringing it it's also I think that Nietzsche's style really serves to enact that opposition within his own text right it's not and, and I think this is an important point about you know some positions that are often attributed to Nietzsche the focus on uh, some idea of power or the uh, ex the expression of strength and a right to rule over the less powerful, the weaker, seeing that as somehow an embodiment of the ethic or uh, form of morality that Nietzsche endorses significantly underestimates to me the basic rhetorical and stylistic bent of his text, which is not to endorse any particular ethical system, but instead to enact a kind of agonism between ethical systems, the kind of tension of the bow that he describes in the preface to, to Beyond Good and Evil. Um, and if there's a praise for certain sorts of aristocratic, ancient aristocratic eth ethics and societies, part of it is a Nietzsche's sense that, that the tension of the bow needs to, be, needs to be heightened, that it's becoming dangerously slackened in a way that will tip towards nihilism, uh, cultural decline, and in a way that isn't necessary, that, and, and by that we don't mean uh, decline, just decline in the sense of the best will no longer rule as they're entitled to, that that's not the sense intended. 
So this also the sense that we won't be able to make our moral obligations, whatever they are, intelligible to ourselves in, in terms of real possibilities that we can realize for action in society without this kind of more vital cultural component, I think, at least in Nietzsche's view. And I, I don't take that to be antithetical, uh, inherently antithetical to the kind of left-wing commitments that I described. Right. Do you, so would you say the, um, you know, to use the language of the online left, uh, like, would you say like the neoliberal position is like not true leftism, so to speak? Um, I know that's like kind of a a, a very broad generalization, but uh, would you broadly associate like the core of leftism with Marx or at least some sort of like anti-capitalist critique that ultimately is sort of an intention with liberalism? Yeah, so I think, uh, yes, I think that I would identify and define leftism in part through uh, a critique of liberalism and the inadequacy of liberalism. Um, one version of the critique, and I think among one of the few most powerful versions of this, this critique is Marx's critique of the way abstract, abstract liberal rights and bourgeois morality paper over deeper material uh, inequalities and asymmetries in uh, the ownership of the means of production and who is entitled to the products of, of, of labor. Um, and, you know, in, in my view, uh, I would, I would tend towards describing it as anti-capitalism that is the essential component, because I, I don't want to, while I tend to have uh, many strong affinities with Marx and, and affinities with certain ways, attempts to synthesize Marx and Nietzsche, you know, Deleuze and Guattari's anti-Oedipus would be a great example of one such, um, you know, synthesis, um, synthesis of many other things as well, but something that joins Nietzsche and Marx in a kind of materialist analysis. Um, I do think, uh, I don't think there's a, uh, a a disagreement necessarily over materialism in the sense that uh, somehow a Nietzschean perspective would reject Marx's materialism in favor of something like culture um, I take it that's that's something that you might be associating with a neoliberal politics, say, say kind of politics that's just focused on on cultural social social issues that accepts a kind of accommodation with capitalism. Um, so I, I don't think Nietzsche. Right. I do think Nietzsche would reject that view. Um, although I, I'd be careful of who I who I attribute that view to. Well, could I? I that's interesting. You 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 went there with the cultural uh, versus materialist uh, element because that's something I wanted to ask you about. Um, because I think I I agree that Nietzsche is like a materialist in some sense. I know he differs with mechanists and people who hold materialism as what you might call a sort of ontological principle. But you know, Nietzsche explains the material world in terms of the material world. Right, um, he, it endeavors to explain nature in terms of its. How would you say it's not an appeal to a transcendent principle, uh, obviously. But I do get the sense that Nietzsche thinks culture is a real thing, so to speak, that it's uh, important, um, and that it. How how would I say you know because obviously in Marxist uh, dialectics it's dialectical materialism. And so you're assuming the driving motor of history is these material relationships. And then culture is sort of like an afterthought or it's like uh, papered on, I think is maybe one of, one of the ways you put it, or it's sort of, uh, what would you say? Culture is downstream of economics. We might say right. it would or be material the, relationships. The structure analysis in classical Marxism. And I, you know, I, I think there are many different ways of, 
of cashing out this distinction. And, and I'm not somebody who, who really attributes a kind of narrow economistic reading to Marx himself. Um, although there are certain versions, certainly versions of Marxism that are like that. But I, I take it that's what you're getting at. Yeah, whereas I do think that Nietzsche, if he doesn't think that culture is the driving motor itself, that there might be more of a uh, reciprocal relationship there that I think Nietzsche does believe culture can drive politics. But I think... Um... Let's I, I would I, let's bracket the question of how best to interpret Marx on this point for the time being, and ask the question: Okay, uh, where where Nietzsche would stand on this question of whether whether we can, we can make sense of an op, a distinction or opposition between culture, superstructure, and economics or material and, and the base. And I, I think the uh, rather than seeing them as just related, I think the the identity is much more fundamental for Nietzsche. So what is what is culture in Nietzsche's sense? Well, culture, you know, as we know, is an essential preoccupation of Nietzsche's from his earlier works. His first book, The Birth of Tragedy, is essentially an attempt to initiate a cultural renewal in Germany through the music of, of Wagner. And, and it's one that he eventually comes to disavow very important features of. But the idea of, a, of some sort of uh, essential renewal of culture through later the thought of the eternal return remains a, a crucial aspect of his of his thought. But the, importantly, I think the idea of culture in Nietzsche, I would argue, is already material in, in, a, in a critical way, which is that culture functions within a certain economy of life and will to power in which a living, suffering being uh, who has to act in the world, who, has, who is affected by things in the world, has to incorporate stimuli and learn to adapt and live on the basis of those kind of relationships with the environment that often involves suffering requires some form of justification for its suffering in order to continue to affirm its capacity to act. I take that to be a kind of core intuition at the heart of Nietzsche's concept of will to power that, that extends all the way back to kind of his earliest preoccupations. And, and if we follow him there, and if we follow him kind of later to the idea that knowledge is something that has to be incorporated, uh, that we try to take explicit knowledge and make it instinctual, um, that there is a relationship between kind of the cognitive aspect of knowing and its embodied aspects, to me suggests that the entire production of knowledge is already material in an important sense. That is, it can't be dis disentangled from what Marx might call our metabolism with nature as human beings. And Nietzsche, too, often uses metabolism metaphors, even comparing the mind to a stomach in certain cases, right? Memory and forgetting is also a process of digestion and metabolism of a certain sort, like in the, the beginning of the second essay. Right, you're a dyspeptic if you can't exactly. uh, have done with anything. <laughs> um, right, he, he, was, he often uses these analogies for describing kind of inability to process, to process experiences, um, whether that's through concepts or whatever else, right? Um, and so I think the, con the connecting point would kind of go back to that moment in um, Marx's 1844 manuscripts when he starts to talk in in some ways in, in very Aristotelian terms about the human animal as distinguished by a capacity to produce more than is simply necessary to secure survival. There's this fundamental excess of, of productive capacity in the for human beings that in some sense distinguishes us from the rest, many, many other natural processes. Um, that is the moment that I think, you know, the Nietzschean, the Nietzschean question would intervene to say, what role is, does will to power have in that kind of moment of productive excess? And does that actually kind of inscribe culture and morality deep within the a kind of second nature of the human animal? 
right? One that maybe stretches as far back as our prehistory, if you follow some of the, the comments in the genealogy. And, and if we follow that kind of path of inquiry, there's really no way of disentangling our modes of material production from this form of deep sociality and deep enculturation. Um, and I think that's kind of what Nietzsche is asking us to think about in many ways, in a way that I think can actually be quite congruent with Marxism and doesn't require uh, asserting any kind of sharp divide between base and superstructure or asserting any kind of deterministic relationship between uh, economics and culture. I think, yeah, I, I, I see, I see where you're going there, but I guess maybe to like, just press like a little bit more on the issue, how would you then cash that out at the end of the day when, you know, like we have one set of economic relationships where you have one person who owns the means of production or a class of people and another class of people who does not. Do, do you think that there could be like a cultural shift that somehow uh, transforms that situation? Or does it have to be um, like, is the revolution itself, I guess, on the material level or is it on the cultural level? And yeah, think, uh, to what I extent do Marx and Nietzsche differ? Sure. I mean, I think to avoid, you know, dancing around the issue, I mean, I think it would squarely be to say that it would have to be on the cultural level as well as the material level. And what that would mean specifically is rejecting what's sometimes thought of as class reductionism or class abstractionism. Um, in certain forms of Marxism, uh, forms of Marxism that essentially see the revolutionary political struggle as located almost exclusively with the agency of the working class and uh, in, in individuals qua working member of working class rather than say as a member of a, a different uh, gender identity or a uh, different uh, racial background than a dominant white ideal, for example. Um, so that gets at some of these questions that I think often come up in this context. To what extent are these struggles for social justice, for cultural representation, uh, in inherently related to the struggle for revolution and emancipation? Or if you're more on the side of, a, of certain versions of Marxism, are these distractions um, on, in, on some level from what are the deeper and more determinative material struggles, which are channeled through class and channeled particularly through the conflict between the working class and, and the bourgeois or the capitalist class. Um, I think that there are a number of interesting ways of kind of resolving this conflict. Um, you know, in terms of my personal politics, you know, I'm squarely on the side of saying that the social and cultural struggles are important. Um, and that we should see these as part of a multiplicity of sites of political struggle rather than one that is oriented around a definite center of the working class, uh, which is, is not in any way to minimize the importance of working class politics as somebody who's been spent time, um, you know, working with labor unions uh, on multiple occasions myself. I understand the nitty gritty of class politics and the ways in which it has uh, a direct claim on your material existence in a way that's immediate and, and often threatening and frightening um, when you're in a certain power struggle, a power struggle with an employer, a power struggle with capital. Um, so I'm not trying to minimize the importance of those or or even suggest that under capitalist relationships, those might not, might not be determinative more often than not. Um, but I think that the problem runs deeper than that. The problem runs deep, runs through a conception of, of economics and a conception of materiality that doesn't already see it as something closer to what Deleuze and Guattari describe as desiring production in general, right? Something that is already both material and social, economic and psychological. 
Um, and I think Nietzsche gives us a mode of analysis for making sense of that. And I think that gives us a picture uh, that's, you know, some people who I think have, have tried to bridge this gap, Deleuze and Guattari would be an example, uh, the late Tony Negri, um, rest in peace, uh, is an example of a kind of vitalist Marxist um, who, you know, particularly in his in his work with Guattari emphasizes uh, a kind of pivot in modes of production under capitalism marked by May 1968, where material material relationships and material production become indistinguishable from the production of forms of knowledge and, and therefore also forms of subjectivity um, through, um, you know, new communication and information technology that leads to knowledge and data becoming more or less indistinguishable from capital itself um, to new forms. Why May 1968? So for for them, and, you know, I'm not. I, I don't want to necessarily um, uh, endorse that as a, a personally as a like a definite turning point. Right, right, right. With Guattari and Negri particularly note, and the reason is that they take it as a moment where there was a kind of decisive failure of the traditional Marxist parties, um, which tried to work through a predominantly working class angle. Um, to mobilize in a critical moment, a critical moment of revolutionary potential, where what was emerging was something more of a uh, pluralistic kind of multiplicity of different different kind of class strata, from working class to students to perfect to the professional strata, artists. Um, that in their mind was a kind of moment of great of experimentation and kind of new anti-capitalist subjectivities and modes and, and practices, at least in, in the the brief moment where it lasted. Um, and they take that to be a kind of important break with uh, both a traditional Marxist conception of where agency in the kind of anti-capitalist revolutionary struggle lies, whether it is really class in the traditional sense that is determinative, uh, or whether our conception of class and our conception of production have evolved. Uh, but also it, it, also that, that second key point, whether this marks a, a definite moment of transition in the logic of capitalism, uh, which you know can sometimes be described as the transition away from an uh, manufacturing industrial uh, society to a post-industrial or service sector economy, and later an information economy. You know there are no a number of ways when we in which we can describe this sort of transition uh, at the end of the '60s and early '70s um, that then kind of later results in the neoliberal revolution under Reagan. Um, but for from this perspective, it would mark both a shift in the nature of, of capital and its functioning uh, or an evolution and also uh, in the site of struggle against it. Right. OK. Yeah, I've, I've, I've seen some other thinkers locate the beginning of the 70s, end of the 60s as this the, really the beginnings of what would later become the Reagan revolution. And there's like a lot of theories behind why that particular date Um uh, Peter Turchin has like a really interesting theory of, of U.S. history, um, analyzing that basically. But um, I did want to ask though, because so we've talked about sort of reconciling Marx and Nietzsche, but maybe a more it might be like less topical to the current political debates, but more of more interest to myself would be Nietzsche and Hegel. I mean, I guess I would ask: to what extent is there like a Hegelian left, or does like modern Marxist theory actually depend on Hegel would be one question. And then secondly, um, you know, uh, with Deleuze, obviously Nietzsche is the anti-Hegel. So to what extent do you agree with Deleuze's reading of, of Nietzsche in that respect that he is, because I, I, my, my reading of Deleuze would be that he sees Nietzsche as like irreconcilable with Hegel. Um, and so right. 
to what extent do you agree with that? And then how do you suss that out? Sure. Um, so I, I, I'm a little less uh, vehement in my, in, in, you know, my opposition to Hegel, or at least the way I would place Nietzsche in opposition <laughs> than Deleuze is. I think that, that Nietzsche is, is closer to Hegel in certain ways than Deleuze would like to admit, but the Deleuze is calling attention to a fundamental disagreement. And I do think that for, in order to make sense of this disagreement, um, it, it, it's helpful to pivot away from the political issues for a minute, kind of away from the Marxist bit, as you say, to some of the philosophical nuts and bolts of uh, what kind of opposition that there is there is between well Deleuze, between Deleuze and Hegel, but also that the opposition that Deleuze is attributing to Nietzsche, um, and um, I would say you know it, in broad strokes the obvious connecting point has to do with what we've already talked about with with a sort of tragic view of history versus a progressive uh, you know in the words of Nietzsche's earlier work optimistic view. Uh, of history and whether there is a, a kind of basic faith in the teleology of reason progressing through history in which uh, society, uh, according to kind of the idea of freedom, will eventually come to embody uh, through the series of contradictions, a uh, kind of state that we can recognize ourselves in, we see ourselves as intelligible in relation to um, by means of our kind of rational capacity. Um, and I, I think that the disagreement here actually helps, it helps to go back to Kant and how we can see Hegel on the one hand and then Schopenhauer and Nietzsche on the other hand as kind of two routes out of a dilemma that comes up, I think, in Kant's critical philosophy. And I think certainly, you know, when it, when it comes to the it comes to actual influence, we don't know, as far as I'm aware, that, that Nietzsche actually read Hegel uh, we know that he was familiar with Hegel. You know, he's mentioned, obviously, on several occasions. We know that he encountered him through Schopenhauer. Um, it's unclear how, whether, or it seems unlikely that Nietzsche read Hegel in detail. Um, he did read Kant, as far as I'm aware, particularly the Critique of Judgment. I know one book on this is R. Kevin Hill's Nietzsche's Critiques, which uh, I, I am going to crib from a little bit here when it comes to kind of articulating the uh, Kantian influence on Nietzsche, because I think it's, it's a really important argument. Um, but I think if you look, if we if we go back to Kant and what kind of motivates Kant's first critique, we have this fundamental question of knowledge of of knowledge. It's a epistemological question of how do we ground the correspondence between our representations and, and the world. And Kant tends to frame this as a question of uh, the appearances on the one hand and things in themselves. And so Kant's radical move is to say that rather than as assuming uh, rather than trying to demonstrate the way in which appearances or representations correspond to things in itself, we'll start with appearances and examine those conditions that have to be presupposed in order for any kind of objects or appearances of objects to be given an experience in the first place. This, these are the transcendental conditions of possibility. And so Kant's Copernican revolution is it kind of turns the question, the epistemological question of grounding knowledge and grounding synthetic judgments in Kant's terms around. Um, but Arguably, the transcendental deduction in the first critique uh, leaves this problem unresolved in certain important ways. So Kant presents knowledge as a synthesis of concepts and intuitions, which he presents as two distinct faculties. And the point of his of the first critique is largely to show how certain categories, 
have to be presupposed as synthesizing all intuitions in order for any kind of experience to be given. And what Kant is ultimately going to come back to is this question of how we finesse the tension between the constituting role of concepts and experience and the need for our representations to correspond to some kind of, say, mind-independent reality. So one issue that Schopenhauer uh, really emphasizes in his Kantianism, his kind of take on Kant, and that comes up in world as well as representation, he really emphasizes the distinction between appearance and thing in itself. And importantly, this move that Kant makes to appearances and their conditions has a certain cost to it, which is we're going to have to give up the idea that our categories apply to anything beyond possible experience. And that includes these metaphysical ideas of God, free will, the immortal soul, the beginning of the universe, et cetera. Trying to extend the concepts that apply to experience, that apply to intuitions, to those two things, to objects beyond experience is going to result in these fundamental antinomies or contradictions. And this leaves us in a position that uh, I think you uh, raised well when you referred to Schopenhauer's question in your last episode that Nietzsche discusses. Schopenhauer's question of does existence have any meaning at all that in the gay science Nietzsche says comes to us in this immediate way still. And Nietzsche felt, I think, that Kant's philosophy raised this question in a particularly sharp fashion by presenting the possibility that our knowledge of the world only applies to appearances and yes, is valid for appearances, but is nonetheless severed permanently in some fashion from the thing in itself, which then Schopenhauer would reinterpret as will. Um, and I think that this is a dilemma that remains in Kant that Schopenhauer has a particular solution to and that Hegel has another sort of solution to. Uh, in Hegel, I think you can see him as rejecting foundationalism, rejecting any foundational assertions of things in themselves, and looking instead at the internal movement of the concept, which he sees as this negative self-development. The concept and consciousness through the concept reaches out and relates itself to something other than itself, that then relates that, that it then relates back to itself. And in some sense, then we can see Hegel as getting rid of Kant's two-faculty model, where there's a distinction between concept and intuition. And in seeing the development of knowledge as taking place within the concept's own negative action, the, the concept's own negative motion. And this is the move that Deleuze in particular is going to harp on and, and reject, I think. The idea that we could reduce the difference, the, the concept of difference, which emerges in Kant as a kind of basic asymmetry, qualitative asymmetry between concepts and intuitions, whether we can reduce that difference to negation in the concept or an act of conceptual negation. So you can see Schopenhauer as heightening that tension that comes out of Kant rather than resolving it in the way that, play, that, that, that Hegel does. Schopenhauer is going to affirm something, he's going to affirm the status of intellectual intuition, as he puts it. He's going to describe intuition as already presenting not only as in Kant, the forms of space and time, but also the form of causality through the principle of sufficient reason. And I would suggest that Nietzsche, despite jettisoning many aspects of Schopenhauer's metaphysics after the birth, in, in kind of the period of the, the mid 1870s, after birth of tragedy, mid to late 1870s, I think he still re retains a great deal of this kind of Kantian inheritance from Schopenhauer. Uh, you know, classically, an essay where this comes up is on truth and lies in a non-moral sense, where he talks about language as a, a as a mobile army of metaphors, right, that, that never really reach the world as it is in itself. Um, but this idea evolves in important ways through, throughout his work, and he rejects Schopenhauer's idea that this tension between thing, between representation and will or thing in itself 
means that existence uh, in its state of becoming is forever consigned to suffering. That is that is what he, you know, or, or must, must demands a kind of pessimistic, resigned interpretation where we're resigned to suffering. That is what he rejects in Schopenhauer. But I think he still takes up that basic antagonism uh, that Schopenhauer emphasizes that Hegel resolves. And I think that is an important philosophical context for Nietzsche's work, because I do think there's another kind of path to resolving that tension that arguably Nietzsche Nietzsche works through in a certain sense, which is through Kant's third critique, where you get the idea of aesthetic judgment, judgment of beauty, as causing the imagination to, as, as he puts it, schematize without a concept, to kind of spontaneously harmonize intuition with concepts in response to a beautiful presentation that he says imparts a kind of feeling of life. I think that mm. is closer to the kind of route that Nietzsche goes in terms of thinking about what grounds are kind of concepts and judgments about the world, that feeling of life can be seen as kind of standing in for what will become will to power later on in Nietzsche coming out of a similar kind of intuition. Um, him particularly paying attention, I think, to the critique of teleological judgment, the second part of the critique of judgment, I believe is what he read more closely at least. Um, yeah. But, well, and epistemologically, yeah. Uh, it, it does. It's interesting the way that you just uh, laid that out because Nietzsche's, uh, I guess, carrying further that tension, which is heightened by Schopenhauer in the uh, aphorism, how the true world finally became a fable exactly. is like rather than some sort of like Hegelian synthesis, he, he, he has he has us abolish the true world and the world of appearance uh, become, you know, well, I mean, I guess he says we've abolished that one along with the true one, but presumably uh, the world as it appears to us is still the world that we're living in, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it's just that we don't have this notion anymore, which does, uh, of, you know, a true world, which does strike me as, um, it does strike me as another example in which Nietzsche, uh, like Hegel will sometimes set up a dichotomy, but oftentimes he does take sides and he does want one side to win. It seems, um, it not, maybe not as like a final position, but, uh, you know, uh, maybe to reveal something about, um, uh, in the case of say master and slave morality, right? Uh, right? To be beyond good and evil is not to be beyond good and bad. Um, I think he's he's doing something subversive there. In so far as, um, you know, uh, not that he wouldn't have his criticisms of the master morality, so to speak. It's just that he thinks we've had two thousand years of Christianity, right? Uh, right? That's emasculated that. So it's not as if Nietzsche needs to go and criticize it. He attacks causes that are victorious, and so it's. It seems like philosophy has been caught in this world of uh, trying to rescue the thing in itself, and Nietzsche goes and takes sides against it for the world of appearance, which I, I just love. It's one of my. It's actually the the first episode of the podcast. It's like the jumping off point is uh, Nietzsche abolishes the true world. Yeah, I'm. I mean, I'm glad you mentioned that passage, which I think <laughs> attention to that. Uh, you know how the true world finally became a fable. Uh, history of error of an error uh, passage in Twilight of the Idols. One of the the virtues of Heidegger's reading, which I personally don't don't think are very many, uh, is to call attention to the importance of this of this uh, little section in Nietzsche. And as you say, I think what one thing that's interesting about this, it, it's not just a question of taking sides. I want to uh, I want to go back to that point in a little bit. Um, it's also that there is there is still a logic of development here in this passage. It's just that yeah, that's true. 
Right, exactly. It's just that the history we see is not the history of the progress of reason. It's not the progress of the idea. It's the history of, of its opposite, of an error, and a kind of further and further descent into error, uh, and the playing out of the consequences of that error. Um, and so I think this, this I think, is what I, what I meant earlier when I said that he might be closer to Hegel than Deleuze admits, that there is a sort of notion, I think, of universal history in Nietzsche that's implied in this passage. And I think it's implied you know, also by the orientation of his thought oftentimes to identify reactive tendencies, not not in particular cultural movements such as Christian and religions such as Christianity, uh, or in even particular philosophical ideals, but really in the nature of human consciousness itself, implying in, you know, I, I see uh, section 110 of the gay science on the origin of knowledge as one good example of this, this kind of move that Nietzsche makes, presenting very basic forms of, of human cogn conceptual cognition as forms of error, right? The idea that there are identical objects, that there are enduring things, um, that there are distinct causes and effects, etc. cetera. Uh, these kind of basic categories that we can't really imagine ourselves thinking outside of, uh, from Nietzsche's perspective, become forms of error. And this is a, a question that I think has, you know, pre preoccupied a great deal of, of secondary literature on Nietzsche, particularly in the Anglo-American tradition. You know, Maud Marie Clark's uh, book on Nietzsche um, is, you know, one of the few that defends uh, Nietzsche's uh, commitment to uh, judgments about truth, particularly in the form of empirical judgments of natural science, which is, is a point that you mentioned earlier that Nietzsche does often rely on naturalistic accounts of that kind. Um, but the, what, what really sharpens the opposition with Hegel is this sense that, that the, as a result of the, precisely as a result of the work of the concept and the, the negative work of the concept, there's something erroneous very deeply in kind of human consciousness and its functioning, that the further and further we trace this error back genealogically, whether it's to Christianity or to Socrates or to certain of the pre-Socratics, you know, Parmenides, for example, in, in, in some of Nietzsche's early writings, um, we find that the error is kind of always already there. Um, and I think this gets to a point that is, is important for me as like a, a, an aspect of what I would consider a Nietzschean left that is importantly di distinct from a Hegelian left, which would be to at least, you know, embrace the possibility of this kind of universal history of, of this universal history of error, which I think certain Marxists do. Adorno is a good example in his famous remark that the, there's a there's a universal history stretching from the slingshot to the atom bomb. Uh, it, it, you know, to to consider this tragic possibility, the tragic possibility of the failure of this progressive project. But to really pose the question of whether this would force us into a position of resignation and hatred of our kind of human nature, or whether when we actually push this critique through to the other side, what we can get is a kind of remarkable form of human universalism and a human culture that is yet to be created in this in through a kind of response to this deep reactive structure of human society and human consciousness one that doesn't privilege a particular race doesn't privilege a particular culture that we can still follow Nietzsche's symptomological analyses of kind of the different features of these but that gets at something about the all too human animal and its basic tendencies and the hue of the human condition and I think this is a theme that yeah. cuts against both a Hegelian leftism and a right-wing appropriation of Nietzsche 
I yeah. So that was going to be sort of my next question is like these epistemological concerns are super fascinating to me, but um, I was going to ask then how how does this cash out uh, in terms of what a Hegelian left or what a Nietzschean left looks like? And I think that's fascinating that, and it is something that I've encountered just sort of anecdotally that people, especially the, like what you might call Orthodox Marxists tend to have an almost, uh, what would you say? Uh, I'm searching for the right word, like a faith that, you know, uh, because if (laughs) there's like a a reading of Marx that you could uh, take away from, from Marxist uh, literature, that it's inevitable. Eventually the proletariat will, uh, you know, abolish itself, so to speak. Um, seize control of the means of of production and if you're a hegelian you know there's an end of history Uh, there is a state at the end of history and that would produce like a very different worldview or outlook i suppose um if you sort of think it's inevitable and i i guess to your point i could very much see that the opposite would be the case like if, if somebody says well oh it's resignationism to say that there's a tragic worldview that nothing is assured that civilizations fall all the time and uh, human beings fail all the time and uh, we're battling against entropy all the time is that the resignationist view or is it the view that oh well this is all inevitable so i don't really need to actually work on this now in in the modern day because it's going to happen whether i you know do anything about it or not to me it seems like that latter view is more resignationist um, yeah, yeah. I don't know. What, I guess if you have a, any comment on that or any other ways that you might see, like maybe a Hegelian mindset versus a Nietzschean mindset uh, on the left, particularly, or is that like the main core of I think anything? You framed, I think you framed the, the problem quite well. Um, and I do think that that it's like it, it is a troubling question for Marxism uh, when you when you raise the question of whether this represents a form of faith or a kind of secularized theodicy. And it's not just a problem in the sense of, you know, whether we want to consider Marxism a scientific theory of history. I think it's also a a kind of moral problem. Um, And I think pointing this issue gets at some of the important differences between how a Nietzschean standpoint versus a Galian standpoint might approach this. Um, Not to to go back to Adorno again, who I think is a good example of this. I I take Adorno to be a good good example of, of a critique of Hegel that sort of takes Hegel's, the, the role of negation in Hegel to its logical conclusion, uh, but ends up in a profoundly dissatisfying place, a, a place where he finds himself forced to thoroughly negate every aspect of the present as false, right? To see all life as false in which, a, a false world in which the true life is impossible. Uh, and where really very, there is little option left for agency other than a kind of aesthetic negation of this kind of ubiquitous capitalist machine. So I take Adorno to be kind of a, a, a brilliant and important thinker, but also a cautionary tale um, for a certain version of Marxism. Because what Adorno begins with is a similar idea, I think, as Nietzsche and Schopenhauer, that the, the particular must always preserve its non-identity to the concept, and that the concept can never totally assimilate the particular, so it loses its concreteness. And, and Adorno is worried that Hegel, despite himself, despite wanting to affirm that the more and more the concept progresses and articulates itself, the more and more the particular becomes concrete, at the end of the day, sides with the concept's kind of reduction or violent assimilation 
of the particulars difference through this negative process. This is sort of a critique of that Adorno has, that I think actually has important similarities with Nietzsche. You'll find similar, ironically similar comments about the concept of non-identity in Nietzsche's early notebooks. Um, although I'm not sure, I don't know if Adorno was aware of these. Um, but the, it, I say it's a cautionary tale because it gets at this fundamental question in Nietzsche about affirmation, about life affirmation versus this, this position of resentment and negation. Because there's a question in, in the kind of arc of historical time is what is the moment where we choose to affirm versus the moment where we choose to negate, negate the present, negate what's unjust, unjust in the present, negate present political institutions, et cetera, economic institutions. The Nietzschean warning might be seen as saying there has to be some point where there, there has to be a thoroughgoing negation, a thoroughgoing destruction of old idols, but there also has to be some sense in which we are we find ourselves capable of affirming throughout this, some source of joy uh, and inspiration in life and its inherent potentialities uh, that still serves as a kind of beacon for affirmation despite the important and serious task that's required of, of, the, of negation that might be required. Right. And, and I yeah. think that the, the question you raise, you know, when it comes to the certainty about the future, this Hegelian picture schematically, as, as you've described it, would say the point that we affirm is is the teleological endpoint. Right. It's the end of history when, uh, you know, through its dialectical prog the progress of its dialectical laws, a certain fundamental form of alienation, whether it's class conflict or whatever else in human society is reconciled. Uh, in some kind of society where we find ourselves fully intelligible in terms of the ways we live and, and free. Um, and that would be the point at which we would affirm. The Nietzschean critique, I think, would, would identify this as a form of asceticism, as a way of perpetually deferring kind of the burden of affirmation, despite in the face of negation, to a possible future. And then in kind of the, the danger being in our disappointment when that future is never reached, uh, finding ourselves sliding deeper and deeper into resentment, deeper and deeper into forms of pessimism that that start to separate us from our ability to act in the world to achieve real change. And right, the reason okay. it's a moral issue is that what happens then is our very concrete struggles start to become subsumed and, and their independent dignity start to become subsumed into this kind of big process of history. Either they're tragic, tragic failures, failures to achieve this final, final end state and deepen our resentment, or we find some further reason because they fall short of the ideal to engage in the process of criticism again and find ourselves repeating cycles, cycles of negation. So I think that would be the kind of challenge that Nietzsche would pose. Um, and it's a question of how also of how we honor the dignity of struggles against injustice when they do fail. And when we have to retain hope in the revolutionary promise, even in spite of those failures, and we have not reached, you know, the end of history. Right. Yeah. I, have you heard of uh, Thomas Sowell, the con conservative intellectual? Um, uh, oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. He used a, um, I believe he even used the term tragic, but I know he used sort of like the idea limited versus limitless, uh, kind of describing the, the right wing view of uh, the position of human nature within the state is that the state always has to uh, sort of come to terms with a human nature that has limits on how much you could change or progress. And he characterizes the left-wing view as limitless progress. Um, he might use the term utopian. Uh, I'm not super familiar with his writings, but it's like one of the most famous sort of yeah. ideas or distinctions that he makes. Uh, I could see somebody reading Nietzsche in that way of like seeing uh, 
human beings as inherently, you know, okay, the human project is inherently tragic. Um, for whatever reason, uh, we're never going to be able to establish the state at the end of history, um, which is, I guess, maybe quite a different claim from we might be able to or we might not, which is a position Nietzsche takes, I believe, in Human All to Human, where he says there's an aphorism called progress is possible, which is a very surprising uh, aphorism, mm -hmm. uh, maybe for people who haven't gone to the deep cuts because it's like the middle period. But where Nietzsche says, maybe we will expand, you know, uh, human civilization and culture to, you know, heights that have never been yet seen or maybe, but there's no right. guarantee that this, this will is happen. All over Nietzsche, right? We're, I mean, think of the kind of, there are passages in the, in the gay science, for example, towards the end of book four of the gay science, the idea, you know, wh whether it's there or towards the end of book five, the promise of the great health, the idea of some kind of incorporation of all of human knowledge have made instinctual and affirmed in a new way. You know, for Nietzsche, this leads to this promise of, of an incredibly vibrant, I mean, as yet unpredictable and unforeseen form of humanity. So I would say Nietzsche is far on the opposite end. You know, the potential of humanity is limitless. It's just that what's what has limited us so far is abysmally deep in our nature, is, is as deep as a second nature. And so the task of getting outside of it and the task of affirming is the heaviest one. It's it's the greatest weight, right? right? Um, so I see it as it's acknowledging. So you might see the soul's view as pessimism in Nietzsche's early works, a version of that. I see that as a position that Nietzsche later rejects, seeing the need for, in spite of the pessimistic and tragic recognition, an independent source of affirmation. Because the reality is, is I think what the way we would contrast it with the Galean picture is the, the moment at which we affirm is always now, right? The moment we affirm is always the present. It can't be contracted out to the future. It can't be deferred to some utopian promise. We have to be able to find the utopian promise within the present and affirm that in this moment. I think that would be the Nietzschean point, that we have to be able to do that over and above and in spite of all of our negations and all of the critiques that are necessary. We can't wait for the deter final determinate negation to give us permission to finally affirm right. and transfigure our misery, right? Yeah. Well, and I think maybe uh, as a follow-up question, and maybe I'll, I'll preface this a, a bit because I, I broadly agree with you, but I think there is one sense in which like the soul type view mm -hmm. might have a, like some ground to stand on within the work of Nietzsche. And so I guess maybe I'll, I'll try and steel man that position here. So I think the turn of phrase in Beyond Good and Evil is where Nietzsche says like all life is tyrannical in character and that language is actually so stunted that it can't even encapsulate how domineering life is. That tyranny might be too weak a word for it. And there's also the fragment, uh, the Greek state, where he talks about the state as an objectification of instinct. Uh, he describes the state as a sort of iron clamp for compressing the struggles between different individuals so that it's it's not a war of annihilation anymore, but a competition uh, so that civilization doesn't burn itself out with sen senseless conflict and then therefore can produce these like discharges of genius and give us art and music and culture. But I guess where I'm going with this is that this picture of nature as will to power, I think, does have implications for Nietzsche's politics, um, because I, I would argue that his analysis based on will to power would rule out forms of human life, human social life, without like forms of coercion or hierarchy. And maybe, maybe this would be a good time to bring in anarchism, right? Yeah. Because there are anarchists such as Emma Goldman who are Nietzschean anarchists, but. Yeah. Um, for for me, uh, in my reading of Nietzsche, I've always found that very hard to like square that circle, because it seems as if 
Um, and maybe that doesn't apply to leftism more broadly. Like, you know, I mean, for example, there are Marxist Leninists out there who would say, well, no, we're not going to abolish hierarchy as such, right? There's, there's still going to be a Politburo um, or, you know, um, I think even I'm trying to remember which anarchist uh, uh, said this, but, you know, in terms of the shoemaking, you defer to the shoemaker. Um, maybe that was Bakunin. Um you know, that there, there will be forms of expertise in which you will recognize a different kind of hierarchy. But um, I guess uh, maybe to, to phrase it as a question, like, is the, is there the possibility, are there, I guess maybe there's two questions there. So first, is there the possibility to get beyond that reality of nature as this domineering or exploitative um you know, having that character of which human life and the state is a part of, is is that a possibility to transcend that? And then secondly, like, how do you see anarchism uh, in relation to Nietzsche's philosophy? Yeah, uh, I think let's start with the first, um, because I think, you know, that this will help resolve some of the more fundamental questions that are kind of lingering here from our previous discussion. I think th to start with, the answer would be that Nietzsche, in, in part, as, as I kind of brought up earlier, much of the rhetoric about exploitation domination, not to de-emphasize that's important, but does have a rhetorical purpose of destabilizing what he takes to be our kind of conventional picture of life in some fashion, of accentuating our sense of its violence and exploitation, right? Well, why is Nietzsche interested in doing that? Well, part of the reason is precisely that he thinks life is also overflowing love and superabundance and the endless creativity of beautiful forms, right? And it's also violence and it's also domination and it's also exploitation. And what we are supposed to find is some kind of place within that where we can find sources of our affirm of affirmation and a form of life in which it, that is structured in such a way as to put us in some sense in a tune with our real needs for affirming our lives. I take that to be at the core of what at least I take to be the lesson from Nietzsche's thought. And I think when it comes to the, the fundamental question of how society should be organized and Nietzsche's critiques of socialism, for example, versus uh, what appears to be a, a what would license, for example, forms of hierarchy or domination in society. I think that what an important point that Nietzsche is having us try to try to address or try to contemplate is not simply the question as you is not not just the comparison you make of, of marxist leninists who would endorse forms of coercion in order to either institute a communist society or supervise production in a communist society what have you um it, it's i think e even more fundamentally than that um certain basic moral questions um here, sorry, give me give me just one minute. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm like asking these Byzantine questions as well, but I'm like, I'm um, I'm also trying to think through this as I'm asking it. So the question is what the question is always what settlement we make with certain with some of those tragic features of life, and whether we see that as whether we see that as an occasion for resentment and reaction that separates us from our capacity to create and affirm or whether we can still find sources of affirmation that transfigure suffering and, ex and, and cases of exploitation uh, in some fashion. So to say from the out, I can say from the outset that I think Nietzsche is an important source of inspiration for that kind of view, um, for that kind of problem on the left. But I think that it's also a matter of recognizing the pervasiveness 
of power relation within human society, within the society of any living organism, and recognizing that an ideal in which a society is fully purged of power relationships isn't just unrealistic, uh, but might be in some sense unintelligible in terms of human life as we understand it. And this isn't just human life in the sense of its needs of somehow in being having power or hierarchy over others and dominating others. It's also, I think, in more, much more fundamentally human life in terms of valuing things. So I think one of Nietzsche's most powerful critiques is of, of morality. And, and this, I think, is, is a point of contact between Hegel and Nietzsche vis-a-vis -vis Kant and the idea of the moral law, is the idea that ethics really has to involve a true selective principle. Uh, and the eternal return is in some ways meant to serve as that principle. But what that really means is, I, and I, I think Alistair McIntyre is someone who, who makes this argument well, that any intelligible ethical system will have to have some system for ranking and ordering human goods, right? Not necessarily ranking and ordering people in terms of their worth, but certain certain goods or values as higher than higher than others. And part of Nietzsche's critique of traditional morality is that it doesn't offer any values that are worthy of serving the role of that kind of higher, higher uh, status, right? And this is provides much of the drama of the fourth book of, of Zarathustra when Zarathustra's, uh, you know, the, his encounters with the so-called higher men in the final book of in, in the final book. Um, so I think that Nietzsche is actually posing a fundamental question about normative justification in some sense and how we how we ground claims to privilege cer certain forms of action ethically and forms of life over others and see others as less ethically desirable. And I think the puzzle that the left might find themselves in is recognizing that they're going to have to avail themselves of some kind of normative language of praise and blame that when taken to its limits has similar sorts of conclusions, right? So certain forms yeah. of intolerance would be viewed as less ethically desirable in a communist society, let's say. Or, or just an egalitarian society that recognizes the demands of social justice. This does require us to make certain sorts of distinctions about, uh, between more or less desirable ways of comporting ourselves towards the world, towards others uh, on an ethical basis. I think Nietzsche is really asking us to reflect on what the conditions, what conditions allow those kinds of value judgments to respond to our real needs as human beings and, and as living beings. Um, and to the extent that they will respond to our real needs, they won't be able to deny the reality and pervasiveness of, of power relationships. And to some extent, you can see anarchism, I think, as a tradition, as recognizing the importance of this insight, recognizing that power isn't just localized in capitalism, just localized in the state, uh, but that there is hierarchy that has to be that might be potentially illegitimate that has to be negotiated at each kind of moment of society and each moment of human intersubjectivity. I think Nietzsche's philosophy foregrounds that as a problem and kind of wards us away from artificial resolutions of that problem. And I think he poses the challenge of whether some form of we'll call it moral perfectionism is going to be required to make sense of any version of our ethical commitments to goodness, to justice, to equality, whether aspirations to some kind of really admired or excellent forms of life are required to make sense of even our most ordinary moral obligations and might not necessarily always, it might be negotiated in different ways, right? Need not entail explicit violence and hierarchy, 
but can be channeled through different means, whether they be artistic or cultural or, or otherwise. Right. But I, I definitely see that. And I, I could see how that would be very helpful or it's, it's part of the foundation, I guess, of, uh, Anarch the anarchist movement in so far as being able to see that there are those hierarchies or power relationships, as you said, not just coming from the state, it also exists in, you know, material relationships. It almost might, ex or it might also exist in the family or within religious structures and so on and so forth. I, I guess what I'm still wondering though, is could there be a society in which those power relationships are actually abolished? Or do, do you read anarchism as, um, entailing that claim and if so uh, how would yeah. that square with Nietzsche yeah I mean I think to the extent that anarchism does entail that claim I would be comfortable saying Nietzsche would reject it straightforwardly um you know I think would reject the claim that we could ever have a society organized totally non-hierarchically if what that means is being bereft of power relationships and I think the reason he thinks that is not is not a normative commitment to domination, certain forms of aristocratic domination being good. Uh, but I think he sees power relationships as interwoven into the fabric of human subjectivity um, and not simply in from the fact that we uh, you know sometimes have competing interests with others or might be acting for egotistical motives, but that, human beings trying to create and pursue their ends of the good will come into conflict and that form and those forms of competition aren't undesirable but often productive and allow us to exert ourselves in forms of of contest and interaction that are that are mutually creative mutually productive you know this is where Nietzsche appeals not to the state the Greek state as the kind of totalitarian organizing principle of a slave class but to the idea of Homer's contest and the idea of the right, yeah. situation for a lot of democratic theory in the 20th century. Now, I think Nietzsche himself might have strenuously rejected some of those some of those directions uh, directions of his thought for for taking his thought. Um, and I do think in this case it would be incompatible with many forms of anarchism. Though I will say that I'm not I, I wouldn't consider myself an expert on on anarchist theory. Um, so I right, think okay agonistic democracy. Yeah, is a good way to, to describe it. And that democracy is interwoven in different forms of human social relationship rather than necessarily being centered in, in a political state, seeing that as, you know, it's not that equality is it's not that equality is somehow impossible, but that it is hard won and always has to be safeguarded against the encroachment of power relationships. Um, and it's true that Nietzsche often ascribed this form of equality to aristocratic societies. You know, they established forms of equality amongst the sort of like select aristoi. And he would be skeptical of any kind of universalistic egalitarian claims. But I think there are powerful ways of extending the logic, ways that might be uh, incompatible with Nietzsche's own intentions, but I don't think necessarily are incompatible with the, the, the spirit of his philosophy. Right. Well, so let's. Let's change gears here uh, with the time we have left because, which actually that's a nice segue because uh, I'd like to ask your um, take on some of the people who interpret, uh, who take that aspect of Nietzsche's philosophy and make it central, the aristocratic uh, radicalism. They really take that phrase and run with it. Um, for example, the Bronze Age pervert. Um, I can never remember what that guy's full name is or how to pronounce it, but um, 
you know, there's a, a reading of Nietzsche out there that's gained a lot of prominence that sort of interprets him as like a call to return to like atavistic forms of government, basically. Um, you know, that we're, uh, we should just return to classical forms of aristocratic uh, class domination. And that's what they get out of Nietzsche. Or, um, and you could see that on the ethical level as well, right? That um, they sort of read Nietzsche as just a, uh, you know, reject rationality or morality and just return to your instincts. Um, I guess, what would be, where, where are they getting Nietzsche wrong in your view? Yeah, um, so it's, it's a good question because, you know, there's been a whole lot of discussion recently about the resurgence of, of a kind of Nietzscheanism on the far right. Um, great piece recently by Matt McManus and Commonweal Magazine um, on Bronze Age Pervert specifically. Costin uh, Alamaru, I believe is his name. Um, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, yeah, yeah. We'll refer to him by his name rather than the ridiculous pseudonym. Um, so, <laughs> right. <laughs> but he, you know, McManus construes this Nietzschean right as a kind of third wheel on the current far right in the U.S. alongside national conservatism and post-liberalism. Um, and there have been several other articles in, you know, popular political uh, periodicals on this. You know, The Atlantic had an article earlier this year on Bronze Age pervert. There was, from the other side, a, a kind of right-wing take in Compact Magazine on the quote-unquote eugenicons of the Nietzschean right and the, and the race realism of their kind of hard or radical aristocratic mentality. Um, and then uh, on the left, there's also been a number... Of, of books recently and, and another yet to come out next month, Daniel Tutt's uh, How to Read Like a Parasite that have been focused on the sort of the dangers for the left in Nietzsche's thought, kind of arguing that we need to avoid, the people on the left should, have, should avoid trying to make something productive out of Nietzsche's thought, at least from the standpoint of left politics and recognize him for the radical aristocrat that he was. Um, so I, I think there are a lot of things that these readers get wrong about Nietzsche concretely. Um, though none of them, I think, are the most interesting aspects of, of the whole phenomenon of this right Nietzscheanism. But in terms of the specific things they get wrong, I think you first note uh, a very important one, which is this atavistic mentality, right? It's in the name, Bronze Age, this idea of some kind of return yeah. to a not just pre-modern, but, but close to prehistorical kind of uh, societal structure uh, that they tend to uh, model after certain, you know, see in terms of military caste societies, warrior societies, right? And I think it's it's critical, and I would say unequivocally, to recognize that particularly after uh, some of his, the, the developments of the mid-1870s, I think Nietzsche, Nietzsche goes in a modernist direction in the sense of recognizing there's no way back from the modern revolution of the Enlightenment and and science. There's no way away to get commitment and a certain form of commitment to knowledge that we get in modernity. And he starts to recognize that we need to push through that and learn to incorporate these forms of knowledge into new modes of instinct, right? So it's important to understand that in, in the image of Zarathustra, the bridge to the Ubermensch only, traffic on the bridge to the Ubermensch only runs in one direction, right? We, we can't go back to the beast. We have to push forward across this kind of dangerous crossing uh, to the Ubermensch. And in that sense, you know, the Bronze Age pervert types are are much closer, uh, not not to the Ubermensch on the other side, or even the person crossing, but in, in Zarathustra's image to the jester fool that tries to knock the person off of the tightrope, uh, that does knock the person crossing off of the tightrope, um, and prevent the crossing. <laughs> um, 
and, yeah. I think, <laughs> and I think that gets at some of the, the, the real fundamental issue because it, it's not just the uh, atavistic nature. It's not just that this uh, race realism, uh, this, this idea that there are entrenched biologically determined genetic and racial hierarchies, particularly of intelligence that somehow justify normative distinctions and political distinctions or hierarchies. Um, you know, I would argue that Nietzsche not only argues as in the preface to the genealogy that we are not knowers of ourselves and never able to assert with any level of certainty what our, what our dynamic and shifting nature is, rather that's a subject of continual interpretation and self-overcoming. Self uh, so he would reject this essentializing idea that somehow we can identify these fixed natures outside of a complex process of interpretation. And, and I would argue though, although I don't wanna necessarily get into the topic here that Nietzsche's racial thinking uh, goes in a radically different direction than this. A good example is the recently translated uh, Nietzsche and Race by Marc Delaunay, which does an excellent job, I think, articulating why Nietzsche's conception of race uh, really does not map on to forms of scientific or historical racism in the way that's required to kind of leverage his thought for these far-right uh, projects. But really, I think the most interesting aspect of the right Nietzscheans isn't in the substantive ways in which this defense of aristocracy and racism uh, and, and patriarchy um, depart from the substance of, of certain aspects of Nietzsche's philosophy. I, I think it's, it's a, actually a point of interesting convergence that points to a Nietzschean critique of these same figures. And, and this is the self-help dimension of many of these figures. You get it in Bronze Age Pervert, you get it in Andrew Tate, um, you get it in Jordan Peterson, although he is a, of a different uh, kind of mentality, certainly than, than this Nietzschean right, uh, because of returning to a kind of Christian morality uh, that obviously Nietzsche rejects. Um, but there's this self-help dimension of their thought, which I think appeals to what I think is a genuinely Nietzschean sense of discontent with meaninglessness and nihilism in current society and the lack of really orienting cultural ideals of the good life that we feel are reflected in the society around us in meaningful ways or accessible to us in, in the way we live our lives. And I think these figures essentially prey on what is this kind of legitimate discontent and function by channeling it in a, in a direction that I think more than anything resembles the ascetic priest in Nietzsche's thought. So, so I think if we treat in a kind of Nietzschean fashion, these people's uh, my, mindset, in the words of, of, of uh, Alamario's book, um, as a kind of uh, unselfconscious memoir or involuntary confession on the part of the on the part of the author. What we find, I think, is is a position that's not dissimilar to what Hegel calls the un unhappy consciousness. These people are trapped in this intense conviction that they rank among this select few chosen aristoi, right? That they represent the superior class. Yet they find themselves disempowered and they're unable to make sense of why. And these figures offer some way of channeling that loss of intelligibility into usually conspiratorial explanations uh, of some kind of cultural, a cabal of cultural elite um, who are fundamentally corrupt. Um, but in a way that I think in the same way as the ascetic priest serves only to intensify the kind of dissatisfaction and resentment that drives people to these figures work in the first place. Um, and I think, you know, this is 
I would say that it's the exact opposite of the spirit of Nietzsche's philosophy, where we are at no point able to confidently look at ourselves, and certainly Nietzsche won't, and affirm we are the Aristoi, that really the, the desire to do that comes out of a certain reaction, the resentment arising from perceived loss of status, right? That this perceived uh, less less worthy and less deserving elements of society or class has robbed the, the worthier of their rightful place in society, right? Um, and that sort of resentment, yeah. that experience of disempowerment is what generates the, the values of this Nietzschean right. Um, and I think it's a mentality that will never be able to either give rise to truly new values or arrive upon a meaningful analysis of the sources of dissatisfaction that are actually motivating many of these people. Um, and I think that's what kind of reveals the, the real problems, psychological problems with this phenomenon, that it really is more of a psychological movement than a political movement. The political that is really difficult to credit or take seriously um because certainly you know as dangerous yeah. as fascism is in the united states right now it's hard to imagine bronze age pervert ascending to the uh you know to to the summit of a new aristocracy it's about as to the, the presidency exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, well I, yeah and i guess he, he's, he's european i think yeah uh, right. <laughs> but uh, well it's interesting you bring up the the uh ascetic ideal um because I see, I see what you're saying, but it, I, I, I would I largely agree with most of what you said. It's just maybe you could unpack that a little more of how yeah. that works. Because I see figures like Andrew Tate. Actually, one of my main criticisms of Andrew Tate mm -hmm. is that he seems to just promote the values of hedonism right. uh, in, in terms of what he's selling, right? And I think calling it self-help is actually really um, insightful that that's actually – in some sense, the point and the political is part of the sales pitch. Right. Um, it's it's like a it's like a cultural uh, garb that, that your uh, people are wanting to drape themselves in because that's um, one of the ways of uh, sort of trying to define yourself against this like sense of alienation and uh, you know against the rest of modernity. But to me, it seems like what Andrew Tate is selling in terms of the image that he presents is like a thoroughly, uh, I mean, you could say, just to put it bluntly, liberal um, dream, right? Of you can be the guy with the fast cars and the nice house and uh, the the hot girlfriend if you hustle and grind, right? Um, and grind part is that important. to me doesn't seem subversive at all. <laughs> Sorry, go, go on. No, not to interrupt. I apologize. I think the hustle and grind part is important because that in some sense is where the asceticism lies, Right. Okay, gotcha. Um, I think there's there's two parts of it. One is that the ideal being promised of hedonism is fundamentally unstable, right? If you follow it like Andrew Tate does, it leads you to sex trafficking indictments. So really a bad a bad ethical model to follow, um, if you're asking me in terms of assessing the consequences. So it's not right. yeah, um, yeah. and when I say aesthetic priest, it's not just the matter of you know, the concrete practices of asceticism, because it's important to Nietzsche that asceticism can be valuable, right? His, you know, oftentimes when Nietzsche talks about his concept of a new morality, it involves a form of discipline. But I see, I think that the hustle and grind bit is, is important because I think it puts Tate squarely within a certain kind of very capitalist mentality rooted in the, you know, as Weber puts it, the Protestant ethic, the Protestant work ethic, that, you know, this 
current trend of be rise and grind, uh, you know, uh, whittle your health and yourself away into nothingness in pursuit of some kind of ideal that's not whose promise is not entirely clear, um, or at least whose promise only consists in the ability to dominate others and reclaim some kind of lost status that that you resentfully are are, are hoping to regain. Um, you know, I see that as deeply in, related to a form of asceticism, both in its content and its function, because you know the function I think is you know, is in, in the reason I, for the ascetic priest comparison, as I said, is not so much the ascetic practices, but how Nietzsche describes that the medicine that the ascetic priests gives as worsening the underlying sickness in some fashion, right? As offering, uh, as preying upon a, a state of sickness and, and genuine suffering, but offering a medicine that either simply anesthetizes the suffering in some fashion or serves to outright make it worse. Um, and that is the, I take to be the sort of self-help grift of that in some sense unifies Tate, Bronze Age pervert, pervert Jordan Peterson, this entire kind of culture of, of discourse on the right, I think. Yeah, well, and that, so I recently saw an article where somebody was arguing for, um, they called it Christo-Nietzscheanism or Christo-Nietzscheanism. <laughs> trying to synthesize Nietzsche and uh, Christianity. And one of the things I noticed about the article, it was from a right-wing bent and it was all pretty much political Christianity, you might say. And uh, it made me think of it just talking about Tate because one of the things Tate did recently was convert to Islam. Right. And, you know, this is <laughs> his, his statements on this were that essentially it's like a political conversion. He's saying like the West has like lost its masculinity. Islam still has it. They still believe in these traditional values. I'm going to become uh, a Muslim as part of his project to, to save the West. Like he's trying to save the West with Islam. And then I don't know if you know who Ayan Hirsi Ali is, but she was like a Dutch politician. I want to say who um, she became famous online for being an ex Muslim who is very critical of Islam. And then for a long time, she was just secular and then uh, recently she wrote an article saying she's converted to Christianity. And the reason, again, was not like there was nothing like the light of God's found its way into my heart. The article was entirely about the West can't just, uh, you know, say that we're against autocrats or tyranny and mysticism of radical Islam or whatever it might be. We have to have some affirmative content. And like it or not, the ideology or the morality of the West is based on Christianity. And so I'm finally becoming a Christian. Right. Once again, it was a purely co political conversion um, that didn't seem to have anything to do with like an authentic spiritual experience. And I, it was funny to me because of the contrast, because it's like, she's trying to save the West from Islam. Right. He's trying to save the West with Islam. <laughs> and I, I guess just more broadly, aside from that, that humorous aspect, it just made me think, what is up with these political conversions to Christianity that are avowedly just about like positioning yourself culturally? Um, because to me, uh, it, it's, it's something just so far from my own mindset or temperament that I can't, I almost can't even really understand it. Um, I, mean, <laughs> but I, I don't know if you have any insight on that. Yeah. I guess what I would suggest is that I, I see, I see it as following quite naturally from this sort of position uh, that, I, that I, I think Nietzsche effectively describes. And I think in some ways Nietzsche can explain 
the reason for this sort of these, this tendency to conversion, this sort of turn. And it's, it's really summarized in the, res, the resemblance between this kind of behavior and what Zarathustra describes as the last man in uh, Zarathustra's prologue. So what's characteristic of the last man is that in some sense, the last man recognizes and is cynically resigned to the fact that all the higher values have devalued themselves. They might uh, look for value in life simply in comfort, in you know, anesthetizing one's pain in some fashion through diversion or entertainment, uh, but it's fundamentally a life of exhaustion that is resigned to the loss of any kind of higher meaning, right? But because it's not able to actually create new meaning, right? It's not able to actually create new conditions for affirmation. The only the only affirmation left to the last man is to go go right back to the same traditional values that even the last man cynically recognizes have devalued themselves. I think this is the exact pattern you can see in Tate converting to Islam mm. or any right-wing figure who has a Nietzschean bent converting to Christianity, right? We start, as I said, from what is, I think, the legitimate Nietzschean dilemma of a state of nihilism in which it is hard to find higher values in modern society and postmodern society that would demand deep ethical or certainly religious allegiance. Um, but the despite cynically recognizing that such a thing is impossible, these figures just go back to the same old traditional and religious values anyway, as kind of the only thing that's left, right? It's just the last- Clinging cling to the driftwood of, of the wreck of Western civilization. Um, so I think this is the perfect, the description I think frames it quite perfectly. These, the Bronze Age perverts of the world, Andrew Tate's the world, position themselves as, as the overman. In fact, they are the last man, right? In fact, their inability to create anything new out of what is ultimately a purely negative and resentful critique of the present ultimately can go nowhere else but a, a, a resigned, cynical reaffirmation of old values that have been tried and had their day, right? And, you know, that I, yeah. I take it in Nietzschean way to frame this mm -hmm. kind of movement. And I, it, is not a, it is not a way out of nihilism, but itself a symptom of nihilism. Um, and uh, one can hope that it will burn itself out before too long. Yeah. I guess, I, like, one final question uh, will concern jordan peterson uh just and i i've i basically should preface this by saying he's sort of been one of my targets from the beginning of the podcast and it's not even because i feel a particular animosity to him he probably wouldn't he wouldn't be of significant particular significance to me as mm -hmm. a political religion or religious figure if he didn't misrepresent nietzsche so profoundly and I've always, it's been obvious to me for a long time that his reading of Nietzsche is like a means to an end. He's like doing what Nietzsche says the worst readers do is like act like a plundering marauder and right. grab a passage here and there that's <laughs> helpful for his own purposes. But um, I mean, he was just on Piers Morgan's show. And one of the things Piers Morgan asked him is what, what philosopher should everyone read? And Jordan Peterson says Nietzsche without hesitation. Right. And he's made Nietzsche such a central part of his message in, in, in some sense. He, he draws on his work all the time. Um, so that that's part of why I've often found myself answering him because when I would encounter Nietzscheans, especially online, self-avowed Nietzscheans, right? They would say things that I could, I could hear Peterson's phraseology where right. they're basically repeating what he said verbatim. And it's like an indication. It's like, you've never even opened a book by Nietzsche. You've heard Jordan Peterson summarize him. And so it's like, naturally I've, I've found myself like trying to 
disentangle a lot of that. Uh, but maybe my question to you, because I, I feel like we'd probably be on the same page re- regarding Peterson. Why do you think so many Christian conservatives and people with a Christian bent do gravitate towards Nietzsche? Because part of the mystery to me of like him saying, oh, that that's the philosopher everyone should read. Um, I, I have a hard time thinking that Jordan Peterson himself doesn't understand that if people actually followed his advice, they would come to conclusions that are antithetical to the ones that he presents like, publicly all the time. Um, I don't know. So that's always sort of been a mystery to me as well of like why there is this impulse of the Christian right to appropriate Nietzsche. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because it's clearly gotten them in trouble at this point. I mean, you see these stories now about, you know, pastors describing their their congregation coming up and asking them about why Jesus is so woke in the Sermon on the Mount and that sort of thing, right? (laughs) Having somehow stumbled into, you know, a Nietzschean position from within Christianity, I mean, I tend to think that this is in many ways a peculiar story of American Protestantism. Um, and both its dramatic anti-institutionalist bent and, and its all its constant involvement with, with both capitalism and white supremacy. Um, I think American Protestantism for a long time has been emptied out of any kind of religious content uh, and in kind of stripped down to a conventional defense of certain kind of strategic traditional values, such as gay marriage, you know, issues like a gay marriage they see as a somehow essential to in this identitarian defense of faith. So it's not surprising to me that there's an appeal, particularly among kind of American Christians um, of this kind of P- Petersonian <laughs> um, perspective. But I find it, you know, I- I'm, I'm, you know, reminded of the time that he, you know, apparently opened Marx and Engels' Communist Manifesto for the first, first time ever in the middle of a debate with Zizek. Uh, you get the impression that this is his, his approach to pretty much any of these thinkers. But if there's a reason that I think he's recommending Nietzsche, despite, I think, squarely falling in this category of the, the, the last man type who might accept Nietzsche's critique, but Bill then tries to salvage Christian morality without God, right, is that I think Nietzsche might serve them uh, in a kind of cynical and skeptical quest to undermine certain claims of social justice on the left. And it's integral, I think, to Peterson's narrative that you get, you know, from his ranting against large language or, or scientific truth I, I would interject i i think peterson sees nietzsche as maybe a, a a tool to undermine like positivist views of reality so that he can introduce this sort of like jungian like uh, right. notion that because fi- he says god is a fictional character which is it, that is certainly not i mean they would have burned jordan peterson at the stake for that in the 1300s yeah um, it's but now that's like sorry go on it's similar to kind of like i i if it reminds me of anything in nietzsche it's very early notes in which his idea that of the need for a new myth or new modern myth are still in their very kind of inchoate form and haven't really worked through you know some of the deeper difficulties when he's still kind of under wagner's spell i I see i see peterson is trying to do something comparable with his his turn you know his unionism this attempt to revive a mythology that that is actually bereft of the sacred content that originally animated it and that he himself doesn't really believe in anymore, but is using largely for instrumental purposes. He is very similar to Wagner in that way. I've never thought about that, but uh, a lot of the criticisms Nietzsche makes in the case of Wagner 
Um, I'm going to, I'm after this conversation, I'm going to go <laughs> open uh, that book and substitute Peterson's name and see what actually applies because that's very fascinating. Um, well, Devin, it's been great. Um, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, is there anything that you want to plug or anything that you're working on uh, beyond what we've talked about or, or anything you wanted to shout out or any, you know, any concluding words? I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me on. I had a great time with this discussion. Um, in terms of plugging things, I, I guess I'll, I'll give two things. As I mentioned, I'm, I'm working on this project on Nietzsche's, Nietzsche's Madness. Um, I'm, I'm in the kind of early stages of my own book, uh, but there is uh, a book in the works with uh, Craig and Will um, from Acid Horizon Pod, um, as well as uh, Justin, who's another uh, Nietzschean, on, another left Nietzschean on Twitter. Uh, we've all uh, come together for a, for a volume with zero books on kind of exploring multiple trajectories of Nietzsche's thought and, and its potential for left politics, um, hopefully uh, due out sometime in 2025, but don't don't hold me to that. Um, and then uh, I am actively writing about some of this stuff, particularly with, uh, in relation to Nietzsche and madness in, in my Substack uh, Methods of Madness. Um, so follow me on Twitter, check me out, check my writing out there um, if you're interested. I really appreciate it. Oh, you bet. And I'll put all of that in the episode description so that people will be able to easily find it. Um, so thank you. Yeah. Once again, Devin, it's been a pleasure uh, and we're signing off. If you enjoyed the Nietzsche podcast or found it helpful, you can visit us and support the show at patreon.com slash untimely reflections. The link is in the description. Or just share the show with any of your friends that you think might enjoy it or on social media. Thank you for your support.